Turn with me now to First uh, Timothy chapter four, which, again, as I said, uh, for those that were not here this morning, that is usually our uh, morning series that we're working through. But uh, I just, I, I, I'll, I, I'll explain it in a moment when I get going. Uh, kind of just some difficulties trying to figure some things out, and, and I'll and I'll talk about that. Um, but it's uh, an important text, and, and I pray that the Lord would give us light on it. So, 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 through 5. Now, the Spirit expressly says that in latter times, some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron, forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For every creature of God is good and nothing is to be refused if it is to be received, uh, if it is received with thanksgiving. For it is sanctified by the word of God and prayer. Now, let's come before the Lord uh, in a moment of prayer to ask his blessing on, on the word. Father, once again, having read your holy, infallible, and inspired word, yet a word that's got such depth to it, such deep import. And, and we pray, Father, that you'd give me wisdom and understanding and that you'd bring forth a good word from me. But, Father, also to, to everyone here present, you know exactly what it is that they need. Father, we pray for everyone that you would give them the food and the drink of your word and spirit, that they would be strengthened, encouraged, and lifted up. And for those that do not yet know you as Lord and Savior, Father, open their hearts, and may they see the beauty of the holiness of our, of our God in Jesus Christ. All these things we ask in Jesus' name alone. Amen. All right, now some of you, I think, are somewhat concerned because I said I have a lot to say. But I'm going to try to go somewhat quickly, okay? I'll be reading a bit of it. Um, I just worked on it all afternoon, but there's some things I was, I was just kind of struggling with, wrestling with our text. Um, so, brothers and sisters, in our, in our text this evening, as the Apostle Paul continues his description of how we are to conduct ourselves in the house of God, because remember, that's the, the main theme of this letter, is how we are to conduct ourselves in the house of God, which is the church of the living God. And in our text this, this evening, we are being confronted by one of the hard truths of Christianity. And in this uh, epistle or letter, it's being contrasted uh, with, the, with one of the, the high point of the whole letter, uh, which is what we find just before that, that without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifested in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen by angels, preached among the Gentiles, or uh, rather, yeah, Manifested in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen by angels, preached among the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up into glory. Now, this is believed to have been perhaps the first confessional hymn of the church. Jesus Christ is the revelation of God in human flesh, and he is the fulfillment of the mystery of godliness. Jesus Christ is the beauty of holiness revealed in human flesh. He is the fulfillment of the image of God. We were created in the image of God, but because of the fall, that, that, that image has been marred and twisted. But when Jesus comes in his human flesh, we see the image of God fulfilled. And, and 
the way it was uh, created to be. Uh, he is the fulfillment of God's promise. I will show you my salvation, and I will show you my righteousness. He is the fulfillment of the psalmist's statement. As for our transgressions, you will provide atonement for them. And he is glorious in all his ways. Jesus Christ is the heart and the soul of the way that is pleasing before the Lord. Now the Apostle Paul hits us with the other side of the coin. Right on the other side of this, he kind of flips to the other side and hits us with a contrast as if to say, yes, the glory of God has been revealed on earth and the kingdom of God is now open and accessible. However, on the other side of this coin is a painful reality. Now the Spirit of God expressly says that in latter times, some will depart from the faith. And just very quickly, the Spirit of God expressly, it speaks that the Apostle Paul, the, the Holy Spirit is speaking through him. He is speaking the truth of God, um, just like Moses and, and just like Samuel and just like the psalmist, etc., and, and so he's preaching, he's speaking the truth of God, and then latter times. What are the latter times? Just if somebody wants a definition of the latter times, from the time that Christ ascends into heaven to the time that he comes again in the word of God is, is given to us as the latter times. That whole chunk of time is the latter times. So, but it says that some will depart. Now the word for depart in the Greek is where we get the word apostasy, or to apostatize, okay? Some of you, especially from those of us from more conservative Dutch Reformed churches have heard the word apostasy many times in our lives, okay? Which means to leave, to depart, or to fall away from a fixed position. Why is this such a hard truth? Because if you are a true child of God in Christ, you love your fellow brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus Christ. You truly consider them to be the part of the family of Christ and part of your family. That's number one. But along with that, you know that if, along with that, you know that they left the, the one true light and the life of the world. And if they have truly apostatized, they will suffer for eternity. Brothers and sisters, we were made in love for love. And if you see someone apostatize from Christ and go back into the darkness, if you have the love of God in your heart, it has to be a very painful and grievous thing. So that is a hard truth for Christians. Now think about what we read earlier in this, in this letter in 1 Timothy 2, verses 1 through 4. Therefore I exhort, first of all, that supplications, prayers, intercessions... And the giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings and all who are in authority, that we may lead quiet and peaceable lives in all godliness and reverence. For this is the good, for this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. God has his revealed purpose, and he has a secret purpose. We know that the will of God is sovereign over all things. But one part of the will of God that is expressed is that men, the soul of men is precious and that he desires men to be saved. And so that should be our heart also. And so if you see, and, and when you see people depart the faith, that is an incredibly difficult thing to see and to witness. So 
to lose, to, the, to lose those who once tasted of the precious gift of Christ back into the darkness of the kingdom of Satan is heartrending. Now, one of my difficulties in trying to understand how to preach this text came from my own observations about how churches and professing Christians use this term, apostasy and uh, apostate. As I was growing up in the churches, I heard this word tossed about quite easily. And over the years, I have found this subject somewhat confusing for two reasons. One, what kind of biblical teachings can Christians agree to disagree on and still see each other as brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus Christ? Because depending on what church you're from, there are some churches that actually, if you leave their church, if you leave their denomination, they're already looking at you as apostate because you are at the purest form of the truth. And if you leave that, you already are messed up. All right, so, and, and other churches have maybe a little bit wider definition of that, but if you leave this church or this type of church, then you're probably apostate. We, uh, when I was growing up, that was kind of, that was tossed around all the time, easily. Oh, they're apostate. And, and everywhere around us, we're filled with apostates, right? The, this apostasy, these people have departed the faith. And, and many of them, brothers and sisters, were just leaving this particular congregation for another congregation, of Christ Church. And, and so there's confusion there. So what is apostasy or what isn't it, okay? So what kind of biblical teachings can we agree to disagree and, and still see each other as, as brothers and sisters? Uh, you have baptism, for example. Some believe in believer's baptism only, adult baptism. Um, some, like us, are into infant baptism. And there is a difference, and there's a, there's a discussion there. But do we look at those who disagree and say they're apostate? No. Okay, uh, viewpoints such as uh, Sunday versus the Sabbath, uh, election and predestination. Christians need to understand that there are many teachings that Christians can agree to disagree about. But there are other teachings that are so essential and so foundational that we cannot agree to disagree. They are the very difference between heaven and hell, between the truth and the lie. But... Christians even disagree on where that line cuts, okay? That's a fact, and many of us who are a little bit older, uh, middle-aged and older, know that because we've seen it, and we've seen it, and we've seen it in our lives, we've seen it in churches, we've seen it in our families. Two, we can also be concerned about the difference between someone who wandered away and someone who is going through a season of doubt. Is every person who backslides for a season or goes through a difficult battle of faith and apostate, right? Because that's a fact. There are people that, that, you know, I mean, you think about an example like King David, who was a righteous man, and God himself says um, that he's a man after my own heart. But yet he has the season that he went away, got into adultery, ended up committing at least second, maybe third degree murder by having a, a, the, the, the innocent husband put in the front lines, right? And, and, but then he came back by the grace of God and working the Holy Spirit. He was turned, repented, and came back. But th that was a season that he went off. Now, if they saw him and you saw him doing that, do you say, there's an apostate? What's the difference between an apostate and someone who's stumbling around and having a, a time or a season of doubt and wandering. 
because we are prone to wander, even the children of God from time to time. So, brothers and sisters, I have, uh, I have come to see that we need to be very careful about this subject. It never ceases to amaze me that the most conservative Jewish people decided that Jesus was an apostate. He was so far out of the kingdom of God in their minds that they said he had demons and that he was a Samaritan. To this very day, the Orthodox rabbis, many of the Orthodox rabbis speak so evil of Jesus that most Jewish people who, who have had their minds open to read the Gospel of Matthew are amazed to find out that Jesus was Jewish in his human flesh. They are really stunned. I've watched videos of Jewish people who have read it, and they said, I didn't even know. Because of the way that they were taught about Jesus, we didn't even know that he was Jewish because he was so far out. And so here's the, the, the most righteous, the most upright, the most conservative people in the Old Testament church when Jesus comes, and he is judged as an apostate. So in our text this, morning, this evening, I just want to look at this hard truth of apostasy in terms of who they are and why they leave. We don't have time to do anything more than who they are. So we're just going to look at who they are. Who are these some who will depart the faith? Now, the Spirit expressly says in latter times that some will depart the faith. And, and so I told you, um, you know, we've already talked about the inspiration. We've already talked about the latter times. And, and we've talked about the word uh, depart, which is apostatize, which means to leave, to depart from a fixed position. Okay, so... The Lord has revealed to Paul that the same things that Israel experienced as the people of God in the Old Testament would be true of God's people under the New Testament or new administration of God's kingdom. Always in the history of Israel, the greatest opposition against God and his people came from within his people. And it's the same today. It came from those who were the circumcised sons of Israel, from those that were in covenant with God. So many examples, but think of King Saul who was chosen for the tribe of Benjamin. He had the spirit of God. Um, the people of God, by God's working and God's grace, um, he became the king. He became their king. But later on, he disobeyed God. And when God told him that he had chosen another one to take his place, from the moment that he found out that David was the chosen, the anointed of God, to take his throne, he hunted that man against the will of God. And, and so there's just one example, but there's many more all through the Old Testament of people who went against, they, they were covenant children, but they went totally against the word of God. They apostatized. In Matthew 24, Jesus says this as part of his longer prophecies. All these are the beginning of sorrows. Then they would deliver you uh, to tribulation and kill you. You will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will be offended will betray one another and will hate one another. Then many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. And because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. But he who endures to the end shall be saved. So the falling away that was in the church in the Old Testament has the same parallel in the new covenant church. So who are these exactly that depart the faith? Perhaps the number one word to describe who truly fall away is the word lawless. What does it mean to be lawless? And I always think of the description of Ishmael that's given to us in Genesis 16. The angel of the Lord 
said that, that he's going to be a wild donkey of a man whose hand is against every man and every man's hand is against him and he will dwell against the face of his brothers because to me that seems to, in such a powerful fashion, just describe that thing that is in every one of us, that ugh thing, that, that, you know, there's many times we want to get along with people and we love other people and stuff and then there's these other times that there's just this ugh in us, right? And and Ishmael kind of represents that wildness in us, that, that, that we're going to do what we want to do. And that's, that's in the heart of every person, every human being. And even as children of God in Christ, we ourselves are not immune to that voice and to that thing that comes up within us sometimes. We experience from time to time that urge that is so deep in every one of us. No, I know what the Bible says. And no, I know what God desires for me, but I don't want to do that. I don't know a Christian that has not experienced that at one time or another. I'm not saying that they've acted it out necessarily. But every one of us has that thing in us. These apostatizers, these who depart from the faith, they are not alien creatures that are so different from us that we cannot even recognize them. There's tr- the, the truth is, there's not one of us that has not experienced the same lawless or ungodly impulses or thoughts. Which of us has not looked for reasons, again, to think that I'm better also than my fellow brothers and sisters in Christ? I'm going to skip that part. All right, so in our text, how do we know these people? Well, he names out two errors of their ways. He names out, we see this, that uh, speaking lies and in in hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron, forbidding to marry, and commanding to abstain from foods. And I, and I just couldn't get that, right? Because a lot of preachers, you know, because I do the study, I do, I do my work, right? I, I go and check out what the other guys say, right? I'm not, I'm not a dummy. I'm not up here by myself. I'm part of a bigger, you know, cloud of witnesses. Um, and, and they go off on the idea of, of the aesthetics. There was a lot of aesthetics uh, in the early church. What happened is you had people that went and sat on, they, they call them stylites, and, and they went out and, and lived on poles, and they went out in the desert, and they lived on grasshoppers and, and all this thing. And they were showing how holy and how righteous they were um, by pushing away the things of the world. And, and that's kind of the direction that some of them go. But there's something deeper in this text, and I've come to see, and so I'm just going to say very quickly, forbidding to marry. Let's just start here. Forbidding to marry is something that is not given to us from the beginning of Genesis 1 to the end of Revelation 22. There is no place where it says that, that the children of God in Christ are forbidden to marry. It does not say that. There, there's nowhere that it says that. So... This apostatizer, let's just say it simply in a summary session, uh, in a summary way, this is someone who adds to the word of God. The apostle expressly speaks about what the Spirit says because he's someone who is inspired. But there are others, and he talks about this in Galatians chapter 1, that, that the, these people are like, even if an angel from heaven came and gave you a word that is different from my gospel, you cannot add it to the word of God. So these people who are forbidding to marry as if there's a holier priesthood, which is exactly what we saw kind of uh, play out through the whole Roman Catholic Church, 
That was like an added commandment. You can't come along and add to God's word. So first of all, these apostatizers are someone, they are people who add to God's word. Now, um, more can be said about that. I'm not going to say any more about that because it's the next one that I'm going to give the attention to. And commanding to abstain from foods. But listen, he doesn't just say to abstain from foods. He says to abstain from foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For every creature of God is good and nothing is to be refused if it is received with thanksgiving for it is sanctified by the word of God and prayer. Now, one of the things that, is, that, that Paul is speaking about here is he's saying there's people that are abstaining. They're saying that these foods are off limits. That brings us back to the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, when, when Moses gave the law, God gave the law and put it in, in, in Moses' heart, and he wrote out one of the sections of the law is dietary commands. And he made all these, you know, like if you look at Leviticus 11, you're free to do that right now. But if you look at Leviticus 11, there's a lot of animals listed, and they're all divided into these different portions of what you can eat and not eat, and they're different types. But when Jesus comes, that has been fulfilled. And so what's happening is these people are going back. They're going backwards to the old covenant. All right, so what I want to do uh, is to, 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 this is something I downloaded from the Gospel Coalition. And it's by a guy named Peter Lightheart. I don't agree with him on some things, but when I read this, I really appreciate it. I really grabbed onto it because this is one of, the arena, one of the areas that I've had not had a chance to study, but it's hit me again and again that how God speaks of the beasts and the birds and, and so on. And, and I knew there was something there, but I never had the time to really study it out. And, and I think this man has done an excellent job. So I'm going to read part of this article. And I hope that when we get to the end of it and then put this together, you'll just see how it all kind of falls into place. Creation's animals. God created many kinds of animals, but Genesis 1 groups them together in several large phyla. The, Bibli the Bible's taxonomy of animals is different from ours. It emphasizes environment rather than reproduction. On days 5 and 6, God created living souls, and that's, that's how it speaks in the, in, the, in the Hebrew, nephesh, of the sea, of the sky, and of the earth. So there's three types of environments and there's three types of animals, the sea, the sky, and the earth. We learn later that bats are listed among birds. Levit Leviticus 11 treats amphibians, rodents, and reptiles as members of one large category of creeping things. Those details aren't evidence of scientific ignorance. Scripture simply uses a different scientific scheme. For the Bible, birds are flying things. Since bats fly, they belong with other flying things. Mice and geckos both creep along the ground, so they're lumped into that same group. Land animals are further subdivided into cattle and creeping things and beasts of the earth. Uh, like the and that's, that's, al that's already in Genesis chapter 1. Like the larger categories, these are environmentally based. Cattle live near man. Beasts are more distant. 
And most creepers, creeping things of the earth, again and again, you have this creeping things of the earth, and, and just the way it's divided, I, I've noticed that there was, there was a message in it, I just didn't see the message. Um, but these creepers are untamed animals that sneak into human environments, the mice in your attic, the moles tearing up your lawn, etc. Adam was told to rule over all the animals. But some land animals are created domesticated, while others are to be tamed over time. Later visions of lions and lambs, wolves and cattle, lying together in peace, don't portray a return to Eden, but an advance on Eden. In other words, the new Eden. The prophets glimpsed the trajectory of human dominion by envisioning a world where all creatures have become cattle. And then it speaks of clean and unclean animals. Now listen carefully to this. Animals represented human beings. The analogy is built into creation. Land animals are creatures of the sixth day, made from the ground, just like human beings. Both animals and human, and, and human beings are blessed to multiply. Humans and other living, living, living creatures are called souls, nephesh. Land animals and human beings feed on the same original diet of green plants. Because remember, in, in before, the, uh, before the fall, man was not called to eat animals. He, he shared the same kind of food that the animals did. We didn't eat animals. That was, that was after the flood. Groupings of animals thus represent groupings of human beings. Sacrificial animals, which ascend to the altar to be turned to smoke, serve a priestly role in Israel's worship, mediating between worshipers and the Lord. They represent Israel, the, pri the priestly people, and especially the priests who also mediate between Israel and the Lord. Clean but non-sacrificial animals represent Gentiles who worship the Lord, Gentiles like Melchizedek or Jethro, uh, Moses' father-in-law. Unclean animals symbolize idolaters and enemies of Israel. And then I'm going to skip. There's, some more, there's, there's more detail about this, but I don't think it's necessary for tonight. But eating as identification. Why were they forbidden food? At a broad level, the food, the food prohibitions of the Old Covenant show that Israel is still living in the Old Adam. The do not taste, do not touch rules of the garden still apply. But the laws of, of unclean meats also assume a certain understanding of food and eating. Now listen to this. Eating isn't the same as fueling. Eating is incorporation. To eat is to become one body with what we eat and with our table companions. What we put into our bodies becomes one with us. Our table companions become members of a corporate body. Now think about this in terms of the Lord's Supper. When we eat and drink of the body and the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ during the Lord's Supper, we as a body are taking in the Lord into our body, even at, and we're doing that corporately too. And so we're being joined together in a fellowship even as we are being joined to the Lord through the eating and drinking of our Lord Jesus Christ. Israel is called to be a separate people. And this may sound funny to you, but this is true. They exist to serve the Gentiles, to bring the Lord's blessing to the world, 
and to light the nations. But to be light, they needed to avoid communion with darkness. They keep the food laws to maintain the God-given wall that is between the Jews and the Gentiles. Israel is prohibited from eating animals with serpentine features to train them to avoid communion at the table of demons, in other words, idols. They aren't to incorporate unclean, incorporate unclean meat, so they'll learn to avoid unclean people. Jesus died to break that dividing wall. The human race is no longer divided between Jew and Gentile, but now between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. The food restrictions that kept Israel separated from the Gentiles are canceled. That's the message to Peter uh, in Acts chapter 10 and 11. A sheep full of animals is lowered from heaven, and Peter is invited to eat. He objects that he's never eaten anything that's unclean but he is told to do so. The whole context, though, has to do with Peter's reception at Cornelius. He can eat unclean food. He can commune as an equal with the Gentile Cornelius. He's no longer, it's no longer off limits. That Even as the, 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 the veil of separation between the holy place that's in the temple that separates the, the most holy place from the rest has been torn down um, when Jesus died on the cross, so it has been that the separation between all peoples has been torn down by our Lord Jesus Christ. These are two implications of the gospel. For us, nothing is to be rejected if it is received with gratitude. When we understand that the Old Testament dietary laws were abolished with the coming of Jesus Christ, then we understand exactly what the apostates are. They are those that are denying that Jesus has broken down the wall of partition between the Gentile and Jew, but actually, even more importantly, between man and God. They are just like those Israelites in the wilderness who said, let's go back to Egypt. Let us go back. Uh, instead, of the, instead, these new covenant apostatizers are saying, let us go back to the Old Testament law and covenant let us go back to the covenant that nobody could fulfill until Jesus comes. The apostates are those that are denying that Christ is the fulfillment of all the law and of all righteousness. The apostates are those that are denying that the gospel good news that in Christ all things are possible. They are all those, brothers and sisters, who reject that we are justified by faith alone, in Christ alone, through grace alone. And for that reason, the apostle says that these people are under the deception of lying spirits and the teachings of demons. So to pull back from the text, just very simply, what Paul is saying, if you dig down into what, what he's saying, is that, that you know, Jesus has opened up, and he's, it's, a, it's a new world, it's a new kingdom, it's a new covenant. And, and so these dietary restrictions are no longer in effect because the whole point of them in the first place was to show these separations. And now when Christ has come, that separation has been torn down. So when these people come and they start adding words to the gospel, which they have no right to do, forbidding to marry, there's no place in the Old Testament that speaks of that. The only thing that Jesus ever says about it is that in the, in the, in the kingdom of heaven to come, the eternal kingdom to come that we are not married. 
right? Because we're, we're one with God and, and we're like the angels that are neither given in marriage or taken in marriage. But there is no commandment in the world or in the word of God ever that says that, that you are forbidden to marry. So they're adding to the, to the word of God, but at the same time, they're denying the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. They're denying the grace that he brings in. They're denying... Uh, the salvation that he brings in, and they're saying, let's go back to Egypt. Let's go back to the old way. That's what Paul is saying. And when you begin to understand that that's what apostasy is really about, I think it simplifies it a lot more, right? Because there's a lot of people that love the word of God and love the gospel. I know people that, you know, friends of mine that are, that are Baptists, and I love them. And we will talk every now and then about, about our different view on, on, on baptism, for instance, but not for one moment do I think that they're anywhere close. They're not adding to the word of God. They're not trying to change the gospel. They're not trying to deny what the gospel does and what Jesus has done. But that's who these people are. They have come, and, and, and we don't have any more time tonight, um, and hopefully I'll, I'll maybe speak a little bit about it next week. What drives them? In the end, brothers and sisters, it's always the same. In sin, we always want, we're like you know, people that build the Tower of Babel. We want to build our way up to heaven. And that is really what's underneath the, the heart of, of apostasy. That's what is the doctrines of demons, that we will build our way up to heaven. We will do this, and we will do this, and we will be more righteous than our neighbor and all they're doing is saying that it's Jesus plus me. It's Jesus plus my rigid lifestyle. It's Jesus plus my aesthetic lifestyle. It's Jesus plus what I do. That's how I gain salvation. And all they do, brothers and sisters, is blur the face of Jesus Christ. And that is what the heart of apostasy is all about. Amen. Father, once again, we come before you and we pray that you would indeed uh, make Jesus a shine in our hearts. He is the gospel. He is our all in all. He is our salvation. He is our righteousness completely, fully. Father, we know that we are called to, to righteousness. We, we know that we're called to good works. But we know that it begins by being justified by faith alone in Jesus Christ alone, through grace alone. Father, we pray that, that in, by the working of your word and spirit in our hearts and minds that we, would, that we would never be dissatisfied with that. That we would know, more than know, Lord, that by the working of your word and spirit, that we would love, rejoice, and glory in that good word. That we would realize what a gift it, has, it is that you have given to us. That all my sins and iniquities, no matter how messed up, no matter how broken my life has been, that by faith alone in Jesus Christ alone, all my sins are forgiven. And my salvation is full and free. Father, make us to rejoice in Christ, his salvation, his righteousness.
Let us glorify him. For those that glorify you, Father, you will honor. And you already have. But also we pray too, let us be gentle with our brothers and sisters. Let us not be quick to call out apostatizers. Let us be quick to, to, to first study it, to pray about it. And, and, and Lord, to be very careful before we speak and say that person has departed from the gospel. But at the same time, Father, if that does happen, may we see it for what it is also. And may you strengthen, encourage, and bless your people. For, Father, we know that you will continue to gather your saints until Jesus comes again. Father, bless this congregation. Bless all your people, wherever they may be. All these things we ask in Jesus Christ alone. Amen.